Welcome back. Perhaps to begin this afternoon with a little bit of looking closely at the text, um, such as we have. These 16, what are called the 16 stages or 16 steps, come in four clusters um, of instructions. These are called tetrads. It's quite easy to see the particular pattern. You have uh, the first cluster seems to talk a lot about the body. It goes right down to something called bodily formation. So if you look on your text, you'll see that goes down to breathing in long, short, sensitive to the entire body, calming bodily formation. This is yeah, okay. Next tetrad talks about being sensitive to rapture, ease, mental formation, calming the mental formation. Mental formation may be a little bit of a mystery in our language, but think of it as heart energy. Heart energies, emotional energies, heart energies, the arousal of impulsive uh, emotions, directives, attitudes, this kind of turning of the heart, the activities of the heart. This comprises the second cluster, tetrad. Third, again a section of four instructions. So each tetrad has four instructions and it talks about sensitive to mind or heart, chitta, sensitive to chitta, fully and completely sensitive to chitta. Gladdening chitta, mind-heart, steadying mind-heart, releasing mind-heart. These are the first three of these four tetrads. You can see it goes through body, what the heart is doing, and then the heart itself. And then we sort of seem to change gear. The fourth tetrad, different language, witnessing changeability, witnessing dispassion, witnessing cessation, witnessing relinquishment. So there's a different gearing here, and this gearing is uh, understood to roughly correspond to samatha practices, the first three. You're actually handling the material, handling the material, steadying, soothing, gladdening, easing, rejoicing, steadying, you know, cleaning, this kind of stuff. You're really working with it. Last section, you're just looking at it, witnessing it, contemplating particular characteristics or, or modalities that occur within this substance, this stuff you've been working with. So this is likened to samatha, the handling, and vipassana, insight. And these are to be developed in tandem. As I think one of your um, extracts tells you, um, these are developed, you can develop one first and then the other. You can develop calm and then go on to insight. You can develop insight and go on to calm. Or you can mix them together. And this is the way to liberation and go to book of the fours. So here we have an example of this approach. Now you might think, okay, I do all this stuff on the handling of the material, the body, then the heart, what the heart does, heart activities, heart energies, 
then the heart itself, and then I go on to insight. That would be a quite normal assumption, but my suggestion is it's not entirely sequential. That is, one can cultivate calm on the body and then develop insight into body. One could develop calming in terms of the mental or the heart energy and develop insight into it. And you can develop calming and steadying in terms of the heart and develop insight into it. So you can imagine something like a, a hand with three fingers and a thumb. The thumb is vipassana and the fingers are the three samatha tetrads. So then you can work on one or the other as they come up. Just like when you have the Four Noble Truths, the First Noble Truth talks about the path, and the Third Noble Truth about ceasing of suffering. Well, you, you realise you can't really have ceasing of the suffering until you have the path. <laughs> so it's not entirely sequential. Similarly, when you have the Four Satipatthanas, which you're probably familiar with, you know, what's that body, feeling, uh, mind, and dhammas, or phenomena, Phenomena include things like um, ill will or, or the negative phenomenon or energy, a positive phenomenon. Well, you have to develop those in tandem with developing the first base of mindfulness, don't you? Don't, you don't develop mindfulness of the body. You've got to start dealing with ill will from the get-go. You've got to start developing energy right there. You've got to start working through dullness and lethargy right there. You don't have to wait until you've gone through the whole process before you start cleaning up the hindrances. In fact, the likelihood is you won't even get to the second stage until you've cleaned up the hindrances. So we can look at the fourth tetrad as a tool that you apply to the other three tetrads as they become accessible. So as the body becomes something you enter into calm down, you can contemplate the signs of changeability the body. You can contemplate the body energies coming and going. You can contemplate uh, body, bodily conditions coming and going. You can develop a sense of dispassion towards the body, recognising this is not mine. It's material forms, material experiences happening. It's not mine. I can't say don't exist or do exist. It happens by itself. It's a form of nature. So you develop dispassion towards it. And through developing that, certain things cease. What ceases is the fascination or the identification or the wrong views around the body. And then there's a relinquishment, relinquishment of the sense of ownership or being stuck inside a body. Which, you know, who's inside this thing? (laughs) So then you develop insight as the experience of body becomes more open and malleable, you penetrate the qualities of that experience and see them for what they are. So that's the kind of way I'm looking at this um, in terms of this, this sequence. And this sequence of teachings occurs in the Anapanasati Sutta, Majjhima Nikaya 118. The setting of this is a rains retreat. The Buddha held a three-month rains retreat in the monastery at Savati every year for about 20 years. This was where he went to. This was his base. Most of the time he was just wandering. But there was only very few monasteries. I think there were only two or three, two monasteries in the whole of that area of India at the time. 
and they were both in Savati. One was this called the Jetavana Arama, and there was another one called the Pubarama. But he'd always, well, for 20 years, he'd gather at the, at the Jetavana Arama in Savati, which was the capital city of Kosala. So, big, you know, bustling place, fairly busy place where the king lived. Clearly, he wanted to be where people could get to him for that three-month retreat. Um, so, so he was interested in teaching, and he was there. And so everybody knew, oh, the Buddha's going to be there, let's get there. You know, so all the summoners, they would say, you know, they, they get their radar out, and hey, let's head in for Savati for the range retreat, the Buddha's going to be there. And there they were, and the great arahants were teaching, the juniors, and so on. And after three months of preparatory training and teaching, the Buddha said, this is good, I think you're doing well, I'm going to stick around for another month, an extra month, and I'm going to teach you Anapanasati. So this is the setting. In other words, you know, he's saying, you've done some preliminary practices, now you can really get down to the liberating teachings. Mm. <laughs> and he presented this, this sequence. He said, this gives rise to great fruit because it fulfills the four establishments of mindfulness and brings into being and develops to fruition the seven factors of awakening. So, major practice. And we're pacing it on Samatha Vipassana and in terms of these four bases. And you can see there's a correspondence there between the Satipatthana establishments, which are fourfold, and the four tetrads. First, Satipatthana body. Right. Second Satipatthana, feeling. Well, this is to do with heart energies. Heart is stimulated by feeling. Uh, and third Satipatthana, chitta. Same as the third tetrad here is to do with chitta. Fourth Satipatthana, dhammas. And the fourth tetrad here is to do with wisdom dhammas, the dhammas of wisdom, dhammas of insight, qualities of insight, changeability, dispassion, ceasing, and relinquishment. And whatever else is said about insight, um, you should bear this sequence in mind. It's reiterated in slightly different language. Uh, witnessing changeability, seeing anicca, dispassion, ceasing, and relinquishment. Those are the stages. That's the development. That's the trajectory. The relinquishment of an ignorance and craving. Now we're working with the Pali here, and I'll take you through the first few phrases. Idda bhikkhuwe bhikkhuwa ranya katova rukkamula katova sunyagara katova nisidati pallankang abhujitava ujjungkayang panidhaya parimukkang sating upattapetava so satova assasati satova passasati these were oral teachings, so there's a certain rhythmic um, intonation uh, and even a certain rhetorical emphasis that comes along with this. This is being delivered. Um, and there's the characteristic motif. He's delivering to these wilderness bhikkhus. This is talking to you. Aranya Gatowa, gone to the Aranya. Gato, gone to the Aranya. Aranya is a wilderness or a forest. 
Rukkamula Gatowa. Rukkamula, root of a tree, gone to the root of a tree. Sunyagara Gatowa, gone to an empty dwelling. Nisidati, sits down, palankang, cross-legged. Abhujitowa, supremely upright. Ujungkayang, body upright. Panidaya, sets up, sets up the body upright, supremely upright. It's a reiteration there, right? That for uju, uju, ujitwa, having abhi means supreme, supreme uju, upright. Itwa is just the past participle, having made it supremely upright. Ujung, upright. Kayang, body. Panidaya, set up. So it He's saying there's something firmly established here. You're really setting it up straight. And you can also just look into some of that. You know, the, the why, why it's reiterated as certain emphatic upright, really upright, you know, and supremely upright. <laughs> How upright do you have to get? <laughs> what he's saying is, you know, like, get it together. <laughs> you know. Sit up straight, and I think there's a certain uh, nuance of ujjuchitta, which means get your mind upright, ujjuchitta, because this word is also applied to the chitta, ujjuchitta, get your chitta upright, you know, don't fool around, get it straightened up, and we'll look into that, that phrase comes up, and that attitude comes up in establishing mindfulness. Parimukhang sating, sating is mindfulness, Upatapetua, fully established. Parimukhang, completely at the entrance, or completely to the fore. Sating, mindfulness, set up completely to the fore. Pari means complete. Mukha can mean mouth, or nose, or doorway, or entrance. And so some people say this means you focus on the mouth when you breathe in and out. Um, or you focus on the nose when you breathe in and out. Um, but it seems more likely with the pari, because you, you can't have a, a complete mouth, it's just the mouth, that it means to the entrance of your mind. You put it to the forefront of your attention. It comes right to the fore of your attention. Pari mukang. It's established there. So satowa. Asasati. Satowa. Pasasati. Mindful breathing in, asasati, mindful breathing out. And again, the mindful is written four times <laughs> in five words. That's pretty, pretty emphatic. So just means he. Satowa, asasati, satowa, pasasati. So you see a number of times that word sati is used four times in five words. That's pretty emphatic. So sometimes people translate this as ever mindful or fully mindful or really mindful to get across that sense of how firmly the Buddha is establishing this core word. And uh, so there's rhetoric for you. Um, yeah. And it's, so it's delivered, it's rhetorical because when you, when you speak you have to make things very firm because people can't go back to it. It's, it's one time it comes in so this is a rhetorical strongly uttered language. 
Digangwa asa santo, digang asa sami, ti pajana ti. Digangwa pasa santo, digang pasa sami, ti pajana ti. Long, breathing in. Long, breathing out. Pajana ti, directly nose. Mm. And then, rasangwa asa santo, rasang asa samiti, rasang pasa santo, rasang pasa samiti. Short, breathing in, knowing it. Short, breathing out, knowing it. Mm. So, so breathing in and breathing out, long and breathing out, in and out, short. And again, this reiteration is a rhetorical device to uh, make the point more fully established. So we'll pause there. And so some key references have been made. One is the sense of the um, empty place non-intruded upon, non-encumbered, uncluttered, uh, this external environment. Rukkamula gatoa, root of a tree, is simplicity and the sense of grounded on the earth. Aranya gatoa, a wilderness, a place that's not got the trappings and trammels of civilised, busy society, which they could probably witness 15 minutes walk away from the monastery, there it was. (laughs) As you go to Sawati today, the old town is right next door to the monastery, where the monastery was. Hmm. So, okay, when you look at it like that, it wasn't that secluded, actually. You know, you might have had 300 monks and nuns, who knows, practicing there. People milling around outside. (laughs) But it's still presenting this motif of, you know, act like getting your mind as if you are. Um, Presumably because then in some future date they would be going back to their dwellings in their forests and so forth. But actually remember and bring this to mind right now. You're not in it right now, but bring it to mind right now. If you ever go to Sawati, you'll see the cells that they used to live in, these little cells, and the size of a, a reasonable largish room would be divided into five cells so a person living in each cell that's pretty tight you know pretty close together it is extolling the virtues of solitude (laughs) i think solitude in india doesn't mean quite what it does in canada (laughs) it means you know nobody's actually jumping into you right now and you've got to maintain that that quality in your mind your internal environment now let's have a look at the section on mindfulness one has mindfulness one possesses the highest mindfulness and skill one recalls and recollects what was done and spoken of long ago so, mindfulness defined. Now, it's not, this point is not focusing on a particular object, is not the um, origin of mindfulness. 
And recently there's been a reconfiguration of what Satipatthana means. Satipatthana used to be understood as Sati plus Patana, foundation of mindfulness. In other words, you focus on this body and mindfulness arises. Uh, but now it's considered to be more likely to be sati upatana, with the up bit elided out of existence. So you get sati upatana. And that seems to be the case in the Sanskrit versions. And the difference between the two is that upatana means you've already got it and now you put it there. You have mindfulness, it's having mindfulness, you then place it on these phenomena, body phenomena. Yeah. So mindfulness is prior to the object. It's prior to the object and then you use it on the object. So what is this quality of mindfulness that exists prior to what we place it on? Well, I would suggest that here it seems to mean it's the ability to, to sustain something in awareness, to keep it down the topic. And the first quote here, one can recall and recollect what was done and spoken of long ago. And uh, so you're able to be taught because you can remember things. And you bear in mind what was what probably teachings that were said long ago. And you can consider some of these people would perhaps only see the Buddha once a year maybe or even a few times in their lifetime. They had to be able to retain it, what he'd said mean the gist of the teaching, sustain it. So mindfulness, you have to be mindful, keep it there, sustain it. This is not necessarily focusing on a particular object, but sustain the ability, the sheer power to sustain and dwell in that which was done and said, which was skillful. Now, of course, there's such, there's such a thing as wrong mindfulness, where you sustain wrong impressions that were said long ago. <laughs> You, you obsess yourself with, with painful memories or with unskillful impulses and you stick on that. This is called wrong mindfulness. And it takes an effort. So one makes an effort to abandon wrong view and to enter upon right view. This is one's right effort. Mindfully one abandons wrong view. Mindfully one enters upon and abides in right view. This is one's right mindfulness. Mindfully one abandons wrong view, mindfully one enters upon and abides in right view. This is one's right mindfulness. Thus three three states run and circle around right view. That is right view, right effort and right mindfulness. When your virtue is well purified and your view is straight... Based upon virtue, established upon virtue, you should develop the four establishments of mindfulness. So we're looking at conditions that are prior to mindfulness. And the first of these is right view. Right view is a, an ethical orientation. There is the results of good and bad deeds. There is that which is offered, that which is given, that which is sacrificed. There is mother, there is father. There is this world and another world, and there are those recluses who have taught the ways into these various worlds. So it's a it's right view has got an ethical orientation. It's also about connectivity. We 
have an inheritance, we have mother, we have father, uh, we're connected to other human beings. And also Right View said there is a path, you know, through this world. So with this kind of collection of recognition of the fruitfulness and inheritance, and then you've got the potential to bring forth good and liberating qualities. This is your kind of viewpoint, your perspective. It's not exactly, it's not a doctrine or dogma, it's a perspective. Like, there is a way I can look. There is a direction I can look in. I can look to what, where is goodness? Where can I bring forth goodness? Uh, and where can I let go of something? Where can I offer things? Mm? That inclination, that way of looking. Yeah. I am connected to other beings. I have gratitude, I have recollection, I acknowledge the good that's come, that I've been born, you know, and what that means into this world. And there's a potential for liberation. And he says, yeah, so, but then what does the untrained mind find itself considering, you know, wrong view, I've got to get what I want, uh, fearfulness, uh, agitation, guilt, uh, uh, greed, uh, malice, one catches on, gets stuck on these. Um, you know, I've got to disconnect from everybody else, get away, um, get off on my own. Mm. I want to not exist, drop out, so forth. So it's a disconnecting, disconnecting from ethics and disconnecting from compassion. And he says, you follow that, then wrong resolve or wrong attitude, you start off on the wrong footing. Wrong speech occurs and so forth, the Eightfold Path. Wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration. You can get concentrated, you can get collected, but it's not Samma Samadhi, it's Mitya Samadhi. By bearing in mind the wrong impulses, the wrong intentions, the wrong attitudes, you'll arrive where you're really stuck and in an intensely wrong state. And you do get uh, people who get uh, very you know, fanatical people, obsessed with fanatical views, extremely concentrated on the fanatical viewpoints, you know, um, justifying slaughter, justifying you know, fundamentalism, basically. <laughs> Religious fundamentalism or righteous fundamentalism, where the mind is extremely concentrated, quite powerful uh, through that, but it's based upon wrong view. So then one has to make an effort to constantly establish the right view because we can also feel like, oh, it's a bit pointless, you know, just got to get by and just make what you can out of life, who knows. There's no sense of there being a path. One feels sort of just a helpless victim or helpless participant in a strange geopolitical pantomime or scenario where we're just kind of shaken around by governments and laws and economy and finances and we just <laughs> get on with it as best you can. <laughs> so one's attention is not viewing the potential for liberation. And so certainly when we, when we sit quietly, you know, what kind of thoughts and preoccupations come into mind? And 
one has to make some kind of, well, the Buddha is saying, make some kind of effort. And effort is a, an enlightenment factor. But just consider it also is just you have energy. To get up in the morning takes energy. You know, to make your breakfast takes energy. To think anything at all takes energy. Where do you apply your energy? When we say effort, it's not about pumping iron or running a hundred meter race. It's about skillfully applying your energy in the right direction rather than the wrong direction. Do you apply your energy towards bearing in mind valuable teaching, bearing in mind guidelines, bearing in mind connectivity, bearing in mind potential for liberation and uh, the damage one could do with one's speech and actions. Do you bear this in mind? Do you put your energy into sustaining that focus? Because many things will arise that cause you irritation, disappointment, frustration, um, and so forth. So you've got to be prepared to not get stuck in what the world throws at you. Yeah. You can go out there and start getting indignant, and so, or you can just, just wait a minute, keep your balance, keep your balance, practice from there, keep the path of liberation in mind. And so we cultivate, with right view, we cultivate right attitude or right resolve, as it's called here, Samma Sankappa. Right resolve is three roots. Uh, Avihinsaka, non-violence. Mm. Akoda, non-cruelty. And um, what's the third one? Nekama, renunciation. Non-sensuality. So what these break down to is, strong words, but Avihinsaka, non-brutality. Uh, yeah. There's a strong aggression in the world. Strong aggressive current in the world. People get angry a lot. Thing goes wrong, blame. Something goes wrong, blame somebody. And then it's righteous anger. You know, last time, well, time was in America and got to an airport and naturally you get flight is two hours delayed, flight is three hours delayed, flight is four hours delayed, flight is five hours delayed, flight is six hours delayed, flight is cancelled. So there's a whole group of people that are in Chicago and they're there, they're going to meet their friends in Berlin or Bucharest or getting a transit and suddenly all their plans poof, disappeared in smoke and naturally they were pretty upset. I can't blame them really. But the people behind the ticket desk sitting there and there's a kind of tsunami of rage flowing over the, all these people. <laughs> Blame somebody, you know. And actually, yeah, I can understand that. They're feeling disappointed and angry, but what's the point of doing that? Because these people didn't do anything. They're just collecting tickets. So we wash over throwing rage at each other. You know, traffic jam, road rage. 
why, what's, the, what's the value of that? You know, there are too many cars on the road. That's the problem. So, <laughs> you know, so you're going to get angry and blow up at somebody else? I mean, the systems. Do you see? It's the systems. It's the airline system, which is run with no backup. So if something goes wrong, there's no spare plane, there's no spare pilot, because they want the money, they can't afford it. So it's the system. The road is blocked because there are too many cars on the road, because public transport is non-existent. Everybody has to go to work at a certain time. That system means you're going to get constant blockage of too many cars travelling together. Is it the guy in this car who's at fault? The guy in the truck who's at fault? The person in the bus who's at fault? No, it's the system that's at fault. Who gets the rage? The person. Right. This is sort of standard daily life brutality. I get angry, I blast somebody. <laughs> you know, like, can you just imagine the, the ripping apart of social fabric and human kindness and goodwill that occurs at that point? Wouldn't it be better when there is a disaster, a catastrophe like that, we just all got together and said, oh, that's really shocking, really disappointing, really shocking, really disappointing. It's really good if we just sit together and kind of just breathe in and out together, maybe touch each other and sit down and just calm down together <laughs> rather than just get, start throwing insults and blame around. <laughs> so he said, this is the right attitude. Things have gone wrong. Therefore, we've got to be friends <laughs> because things let us down. Us people, we've got to get together to restore our hearts, our heartfulness. Yeah? And then it doesn't matter so much. We can share, we can help out. Yeah. Right attitude, right resolve. So you establish this sense because then if you're using that as you're practicing your meditation, you've got that sense of constant sympathy that's going into your body and into your mind, realising, yes, there's difficulties, yes, there's ugly thoughts, yes, there's tangled emotions. Let's not get frustrated about it and start feeling, oh, I can't do this, I'm a useless person. No, this is the time when you've got to extend metta, metta and compassion, you know. Healing, healing, not blaming, not dismissing, not cutting off, but healing, gathering together, taking your chaos back home and cuddling it. <laughs> right? Isn't that beautiful? Because you bear in mind the consequences of acting in frustration and blaming and getting upset and getting annoyed. You bear in mind that's established for you so you don't do it. You've checked that reflex. You've borne something in mind. Therefore, that means you can then sustain your mindful presence in the face of chaos and you're no longer shaken by it. There's where your samadhi is going to come from, where your strength is going to come from. Okay. Non-cruelty, as it's translated. This means you don't dismiss things. It's not, ah, well, yeah. Not insensitive. 
that's your problem. Tough luck. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm too busy right now. Yeah. That's what we call cruelty is the withdrawal of empathy. The withdrawal of empathy, the withdrawal of sympathy is cruelty. And it's a strong word, but if you look at the acts of cruelty that human beings can do to other human beings, when the other human being is seen as one of them, a different nationality, a different gender, a different ethnicity, them, we're no longer at empathy, I can kill you. And we do. And not just kill, we torture and torment, rape and molest, because you're just an object. Hmm? That's cruelty. Right? Where does it come from? Withdrawal of common feeling. I no longer feel for you. We're not in the same. I no longer feel for you. You're separate from me. Yeah. We can do that to others, and of course we do it to animals who are treated with absolute barbaric atrocity. Um, intensive farming, slaughter, hunting, for fun. Intensive farming, it's, it's heartbreaking. And you know, we do it to ourselves. We give up on ourselves. We, you know, people kill them. We're the, we're the creatures who kill themselves. No other creature does that. The most common single loss of life for people under the age of 30 is suicide. So if people die under 30, the single predominant cause is they kill themselves. They're less than 30 years old. They've already given up on life. It's impossible, there's no point going on. Hmm? Hmm? What's that about? Yeah. So this is a powerful energy. Abandonment of empathy. Therefore, you never abandon it. It's deadly. And, of course, we're looking here at the microcosm, this being, you know, your own body, your own mind, your own heart, with its errors and mistakes and flaws and pains and sorrow. Just imagine a quality of empathy directed to that as you breathe in and breathe out. This is not just the theory... There's an energy there. The energy of the warm heart is the healer. There is no other healer. There is no other healer than this. And you have it. Okay, renunciation. What does this mean? Uh, lesson leaning on sensuality. Lesson leaning on sense pleasures. Lesson, leaning, lesson the leaning on external phenomena for your comfort and security. If you keep leaning on it, driven out to it, dependent upon it, you weaken yourself. You weaken your, your inner sources. You don't stand up straight. You're leaning on. And they will let you down. They will collapse. They will pass. They will change. And you don't develop that independence, dignity, strength. And you don't find your own happiness 
in your own embodied presence. And unfortunately for many people, there is no happiness in the embodied presence. Because there's no embodied presence, there's just the next hit. And that's, that's the bottoming out of the human condition that can and does occur. Right? Right? And you can see even people with massive amounts of money and jewels and baubles and fantastic possibilities of entertainment, still obsessive, narcissistic, greedy, angry, irritable, addictive, depressed. Just doesn't work. Buddha's saying you can develop your own inner resources. And this is not just a theory, it's an actuality. Uh, and it's not pie-in-the-sky idealism, it's felt in your own body. This is right view, right resolve. With that kind of inclination, you say, well, then let me make an effort to bring that around. I will establish mindfulness. As he abides diligent, ardent, resolute, memories and intentions based on the household life are abandoned, heart becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness and concentrated. This is how a bhikkhu develops mindfulness immersed in the body. Kaya gata sating. Majimina kaya 119. Kaya gata sating. So it's this is an interesting formulation. It's also... Gata means gone to or gone in. So it's sometimes translated as directed to the body. And as a sutta, the Kaya Gata Sutta, Kaya Gata Sati Sutta, Majimi 119, and that's sometimes translated as mindfulness of the body. Uh, I think that loses something um, because this is mindfulness the sense of it being taken into the body. And the Buddha says when you develop this, look at the section 8 of your paper, who develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing. When this is practiced and pursued, the body is calm, the mind is calmed, thinking and evaluating are stilled. All qualities on the side of clear knowing go to the culmination of the development, which is this one thing, mindfulness, immersed in the body or directed to the body. When one thing is practiced and pursued, ignorance is abandoned. Clear knowing arises, the conceit I am is abandoned, obsessions are uprooted, Fetters are abandoned. Which one thing? Mindfulness immersed in the body. Those who do not taste mindfulness of the body do not taste the deathless. Those who taste mindfulness of the body taste the deathless. And so on. Something very direct about that. Tasting. And also another phrase is touching the deathless. Is sometimes another phrase that's brought up, touching, tasting. This is pretty direct, isn't it? It's, it's pretty tactile. 
is you really got it, you're tasting it and touching it, and they're immersed in you something extremely almost earthy about that. You're really right in there. And so he's saying, well, then when you've done these preparatory practices of recognizing what's called the household life, <laughs> yeah, a bit of a, a grim view of the household life, but I, you know, it's meaning basically the busy worldly condition. And you've seen, you put aside the kind of busy, scrambled uh, business model, pursuit of, you know, money and stuff like that. And you see the disadvantages of that and you're able to put that aside, the business model, put it down for an hour, for a day, for a month, trim it, recognize its, its failings, uh, don't get tethered to the system. Your virtue is purified, your view is straight. Then you've made these efforts to arouse and cultivate samma sati, samma sati, right mindfulness. Samma means something like complete or fulfilled. It's like a holistic term. It means there's no there's no flaw in it. It's not just right and wrong. It means it's 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 unbroken. It's it's covering everything. It's comprehensive. Samasati. And then um, a rather long extract here. It's number nine on your paper. This is the Sangyuta Nikaya 35 206 where the Buddha gives this parable or this homily of the six animals tied to a, a post. And the six animals are sight sound, touch, sight, sound, touch, smell, taste and thought, right, so it's seeing, hearing, uh, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking and these go what's called out, they tend to go in different directions and they pull what do they pull? Hmm? They say they pull me. What's the me that they pull? Okay. It's the heart, isn't it? It's chitta. They pull your awareness. They pull your intentions. They steer your interests. They direct your attitudes. They pull your chitta. Yeah. So he says they're like six animals and one pulls in one way and one pulls in another way. You know, they're often fighting with each other. So then you take a post. And this is mindfulness immersed in the body. And you ram that post into the ground and you tether these six animals to that post. So they can't run out. 
And so when you do that, eventually they just get tired and exhausted, they sit down. <laughs> and then having sit down, so then one has uh, established strong mindfulness immersed in the body. And Majima 4, tireless energy was aroused and unremitting mindfulness established. My body was tranquil and untroubled. My heart steadied. Samahitang, a unified ekagang. So things are quietened down. So when we're saying mindfulness of the body, and yet he's saying tactile sensations pull you out. So what's happening here? If tactile sensations pull you out, you shouldn't be placing your mindfulness on tactile sensations, right? Because that would pull you out. So what in your body is not a tactile sensation? If you've got mindfulness immersed in the body as a post, but tactile sensations as a wild animal, you have to have an alternative to something in the body that's not a tactile sensation. What do you think that is? <laughs> hmm? <laughs> well, what about your, your nervous system? What about the system that does breathing for you, that gets your body to breathe? that when you're running it gets your body to breathe faster when you're frightened it agitates your breathing and when you're calm it slows down your breathing there's an intelligence there isn't there that's not about tactile sensation that's the body dealing with its own inner balance environment property uh, well-being and we say this is the autonomous nervous system. Right? Tactile sensations are just touching the outside of the body and you can like them or dislike them, whatever. The Buddha is saying don't give too much attention to that. Instead focus on the bodily immersed within the body, your sense of embodiment. Use that as your pillar. Does this make sense to you? So when you're focusing on mindfulness of breathing, should you focus on tactile sensations? I don't think so. I think you're better to focus on the energies of breathing in and breathing out. Because that's going to create and enrich this inner post that will stand firm wherever you go and stop your chitta being pulled out by sight, sound, thought, taste, fragrance, touch. Mm -hmm. So you tether your attention to this. So when your view is straight, you know this is where you want to go. When your virtue is straight, you act in ways that are kindly, 
ethical, attuned, empathic, modest, balanced, sensitive. And you tune in, because if you don't do that, the unwholesome influences of your mind will actually begin to agitate your nervous system. It's not just a moral judgment. It's a fact that if you approach your own embodiment with an angry or impatient mind, it will tense up. If you start doing breathing in and out with an idea of forcing it so you get the results, your body will tense up. And you may think you're getting concentrated, and maybe you are getting concentrated, but maybe this is wrong concentration. You're just getting more tight. And this is certainly a concern, and certainly a concern I have with mindfulness of breathing. I was talking to uh, someone a little while back on retreat who said she couldn't do mindfulness of breathing because when she did mindfulness of breathing, she couldn't breathe anymore. It was just too tight. She got into a panic attack with mindfulness of breathing. It was just too constrictive, too tight, too tense. You know, Because her attitude, which she'd been training, was to focus on this point unwaveringly. Get to that point and hold it. And hold it steady. And as soon as the body felt that, it started to seize up. <laughs> so, so, you know... Eventually she went to a monastery where they didn't teach mindfulness of breathing and she was out in the grounds. Ah, oh, finally I can breathe because I don't have to be mindful of it anymore. <laughs> she felt free to breathe because she didn't have to be mindful of breathing. <laughs> yeah, you know, is, that what, is that what mindfulness of breathing is about? <laughs> so tight and constrictive that you do you think, it becomes, it drives you into a state of constriction. This is not mindfulness. This is not what the Buddha is recommending. <laughs> Instead, we see encouraging phrases like, um, when one dwells diligently, gladness is born. Gladness is born. You feel happy. Because you're approaching with a sweet mind, with a good heart with a compassionate, kindly heart. So you're touching into something that's very meaningful for you. You know, how balanced you are, how comfortable you are, how steady you are, and you're concerned for that. And there's a sense in which there's a quality of goodwill towards this body. And you cultivate it. Gladness is born. When one is gladdened, rapture arises. Mind is uplifted by rapture. Body becomes tranquil. One tranquil in body experiences happiness. The mind of one who is happy becomes concentrated. When the mind is concentrated, phenomena become manifest. One is reckoned as one who dwells diligently. You see clearly when your mind is happily concentrated. Mm-hmm.
So what aspect of the body will do that for you? The body has a lot of aches and pains, isn't it? Well, breathing in, breathing out. There's no ache and pain in that. The energy, the feeling, that which enables you to breathe fully, deeply, out. Fully, deeply, unrestrictedly, breathing in, comfortable, with a mind intent on kindness, sympathy, connected. And then you're going to get the sign arises. The sign arises. What is the sign? The sign is gladness. And you'll see on another one of these, um, the document I've put, place the little extract, which is the parable of the cook. And it's number three of your third paper, which occurs in, it's actually in the Sangyutan Nikaya 47.8. The Buddha gives an example of two cooks. And one he calls the foolish, incompetent cook, who has the cook for the king, and the king hires him. Yeah. And the cook cooks up some food, and he brings it to the king, and he puts it down in front of the king, and he walks off. The king looks at his food, and he, he doesn't really like potatoes. He doesn't like carrots. What he really likes is, you know, I don't know, kale or broccoli or spaghetti or something. This is India, so, so he really likes this. The other stuff he doesn't like, so he doesn't eat it. Cook comes back, picks up the plate, takes it out and throws the food away. He doesn't notice what the king didn't eat. Next day he brings the same food. King, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like this. Same thing happens. Cook takes the food away, doesn't notice what the king did eat and doesn't notice what the king didn't eat. Next day he brings the same thing. King eventually gives him the sack. The wise cook prepares the food, puts it down in front of the king. He stands back, he looks at the king. He notices, oh, he's eating that. Oh, he likes that. He doesn't touch that. What about tomorrow? I'll just give him that and that. And he gives him the food he likes. Next day, he brings in more of the food that the king likes. He notices, yeah, he really likes that. He doesn't like that. Next day, he brings in only the food that the king likes. king is very happy. He gives the the cook gives him a raise, promotes him, says, oh, here's some more wages, because he took note of what the king liked. He said, this is like a monk or a bhikkhu who doesn't notice what his mind takes to. So he practices mindfulness. He does practice mindfulness, but he brings in his mindfulness practice and puts it down in front of the mind. The mind doesn't really take to that. It's bored with that. It's not interested in that. But he says, oh, next day he brings the same thing. You should practice more of this. Mind still doesn't like it. Yeah. You should practice counting the breath. Yeah, mind doesn't like it. You should practice you know, focusing on this or the other. The mind doesn't take to it. 
so the mind isn't happy. So what does the bhikkhu do? He brings in more of it and tries to force it on the mind. <laughs> and the mind won't have it. He said, this is a foolish, incompetent practitioner. A wise one presents some possible practices and says, what, where, where does gladness arise? Notices, oh, he picks up that. He's gladdened by that. More of that. More of that. And then the mind starts to rise up. He was glad and happy because the right food is being presented. So this is where you should practice. Notice the sign of your mind. The sign of your mind when it picks up. So as we're cultivating or beginning to cultivate, so we're looking in experience of body. How does it get comfortable? How does it feel steady? You can't just give it orders. It's a sensitive creature. How does it feel steady and comfortable? Mm, take your time. Don't start when you've got to follow some system. Find out what works. So your breathing in and out becomes natural, comfortable, agreeable. Your mind takes an interest in it. That's comfortable. That's agreeable. Oh, I could sit with that. Good. Linger in that. Notice which particular aspects of breathing, what attitudes do you bear in mind that bring that quality, make it shine? You know, how much, what kind of attention do you use? What kind of effort do you use? Too much effort, it gets strained. Not enough effort, it goes slack. What kind of attention and effort do you get to use to make that quality glad, brightened? It's possible. Find the sign. Start listening to the responses of your heart. Where it picks up, where the body is comfortable, the heart is settled, gladness arises. Dwell in that. It gives you happiness and joy. Someone who cultivates this way will find themselves tireless. There's no strain, there's no pressure. They're invigorated and refreshed. This means their practice is going to bear fruit and they will persevere to eliminate the fetters and the obstructions that cause suffering. <laughs>